Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Hey, everybody. Welcome to part two of our Naked Marriage series. We're so glad that you all are here this morning. And I know many of you joined us last week, but if you are here for the first time, welcome. And you're probably scratching your head like, I've never been to a church service that is entitled Naked Marriage or that has even naked in the title. But we just think naked is nakedness is awesome, and it's in the Bible. Nakedness is awesome. Yes. If, if it was legal, I would be naked right now. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's a good thing. But we didn't come up with this concept, right? No, we did I mean, not. God is the one who invented the idea of a naked marriage. In fact, there's a, a theme verse that we've been kind of basing this whole series on that paints the picture of the kind of intimacy that God desires in every marriage. That's right. It's based off of Genesis 2 where it talks about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. And it's just this beautiful picture of the first married couple and how they were bearing all to each other. Literally naked in the physical sense, but also naked in the spiritual and the emotional sense. And we really believe that God still wants us to have those kind of what we like to refer to as naked marriages today. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's what his desire is for everybody. Everybody that's, that's married to have that kind of intimacy and trust. You know, this first couple, they had no secrets, no masks, no baggage. And that's what nakedness represents. It wasn't just in a physical sense, but in an emotional sense. And he still desires the same thing for all who are married. And so in this series, as we're talking about what that looks like in marriage, there's also a lot in this for single folks. If you're here today and you're, you're single, you're watching this, and you're like, I don't know if this applies to me yet. The principles that we're going to talk about, God's plan for your life it applies to you right now. This isn't something that you've got to wait to be married to start living out, what we're going to talk about today. But for those of you who are married, uh, I think that it's going to have a very specific impact if you'll apply these principles that we're going to discover from God's Word. Exactly. And as you'll notice, for many of you who walked in, we have actually a rating for this series. It's PG-13. And it's because we are going to talk openly about marriage and about sex. And we want to be able to take a moment in church and do that because... You know, I think so many times we get uncomfortable talking about it, even in church. But the, the fact of the matter is God is the creator of sex. And he created it Thank for you, marriage. I mean, <laughs> it was his idea. That's right. How cool right. is God? I mean, that we and what we've done in churches, though, I think, is we've acted like it's the devil's thing. Right? And I think a lot of us were raised in traditions where that was sort of how it was treated. It was like, oh, it's something we don't speak of. That's the devil's business. Listen, that's one of the most dangerous lies the devil has ever told. And we act like... Sex belongs to Satan. Nothing belongs to Satan. Satan's never invented or created anything. He's only perverted and twisted that which has been created. Yep. Sex was God's design, God's plan. It's one of the first things he ever created. And he said, it, it, it is good. And that first couple that enjoyed it within marriage, it was naked and without shame. There was no shame at all attached to it because it was, it was done appropriately in this beautiful commitment and communion and covenant between a husband and a wife. And if we can't talk openly in a healthy way about sex and marriage in church, then our silence is going to just allow those lies of the enemy and those lies and distortions of culture to fill in that vacuum with a bunch of bad information. And that's why there are generations growing up with nothing but bad information when it comes to sex and marriage and what it's really meant to be. So it's time to redeem the conversation and reclaim it because it, it belongs to God. And I think that married Christian people should be having the best sex on the planet because that's God's design for it. And we've got to be willing to talk about it. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that's just willing to be part of that conversation. 
Absolutely. And so some of you, like, we probably just completely weirded you out and you're so uncomfortable right now because we said naked in sex like a bazillion times. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's just going to get even more so uncomfortable. Well, and it, these are words that are, that are in the Bible. <laughs> right. And in exactly. fact, the PG-13 rating even has a biblical and an historical precedent. It does. Um, in, in Jewish culture, kids were start, they, they, they learned the Hebrew scriptures, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They started memorizing those as preschoolers. Um, but there are certain parts of the Old Testament that were considered PG-13, that a, a young boy or young girl weren't allowed to read until their bar mitzvah or ba mitzvah until they turned 13. Song of Solomon, which is erotic love poetry, uh, so erotic that it, it was illegal to translate it uh, in 52 countries uh, up until about 100 years ago. Because, it, I mean, it's steamy stuff if you really understand what they're talking about there. There are parts of scripture that are very openly and even explicit as it relates to this gift that God's given us within marriage. And so... But also something that's important and fun to talk about. So we're going to talk openly about it. And we do recognize that sex, nakedness, or just the word naked, that these are charged words. These are words that kind of can change everything sometimes, right? And, and we've really noticed that like one word has the power to change everything. And as parents of four boys, four rambunctious boys, like this morning we're coming in and literally it's like crazy town, isn't it? Like just dragging only two of our boys yeah, trying to four. get them into the child care. Like, so I don't, I don't know if you believe in modern day demon possession, but we see it every Sunday morning with our we children. Do. Like it we happens. Do. Like they're sweet little kids. And then all of a sudden you start, you say it's time to get ready for church. And it's just like, ah, you know, the exorcist. <laughs> and, then, know. and then you got to do the church thing where you get here and you're so mad at your children, but you have to act nice because you're at church. You know what I'm talking about? Like you pull up and you've been just, I'm going to spank, I'm going to spank you. And you get out of the car and you're like, hey, God bless you. Hi. You just turn into Joel Osteen all of a sudden. It's like, you're just like smiling. And you're, and, but then you, you get him and you're just like, I'm going to spank you. And every parent knows what I'm talking about. You know, and if you're look, if you're judging me right now, it's because you don't have kids. You don't know, but you don't know it, yet. It, you don't know. it, it does. It's and it's Sunday morning. I don't it's know what so it is. crazy. And so as parents of crazy boys, we often hear the words mom and dad, right? Yeah. But there was one time where we heard the word dad in such a tone that it not only changed our lives forever, it pretty much changed yeah. our kids' lives too. A lot of lives changed that day. Yes. I remember it well. We were on a trip with our children. We don't take vacations with our children because vacation insinuates there will be some rest involved. And we know that's not happening. So we take trips. We go from one place to another. There's no rest, but we, we go places. And so we were on one of these trips, uh, and it was an extended family trip. You know, it was uh, Ashley's parents. They were a lot of fun. Ashley's sister um, and her husband and their daughter. We were all sharing one house in Hilton Head. Now, I love these big family trips, but one of the difficult parts of them is that it makes it really difficult to have any privacy, any special mommy-daddy time, yes. if you know what I'm saying. Uh, and, and a trip that you're already stressed, you're already tired, if there's not going to be any special marital bliss at all during that, it makes the trip even more difficult. So we thought, all right, this just isn't going to happen, not going to be one of those kind of trips. But a window of opportunity emerged. Now, the conditions were perfect. The baby was asleep. The younger, our older boys were playing video games. Everybody was doing something. And, and I was like, sweetie, if it's going to happen, now's the time. And the, you've never been more beautiful than you were in that moment when you were like, this is, this is the time. So we were excited. I was excited. I don't know. I'm, I'm like, yes, this week might not be as bad as I thought. So we, we go upstairs. Now, logistics are difficult on extended family trips. Not a lot of privacy. So in our room... The baby was asleep in a crib, very light sleeper, so that's out. I'm like, what else do we got? Only other option, 
was this room where our older boys were sleeping. Two twin beds, their room. I'm like, we'll make it work. You know, it's fun. So close the door, lock the door. Now, as a quick side note, what I expect out of a lock on a door yeah. is that once it's locked, it only has one job. Remain locked. That's it. That's, it. that's all you got to do. That's what you were made to do. Apparently, the homeowners of this establishment had a different definition for what a locked door was meant to do. So I locked the door. It was locked. And then, you know, we began to be very loving to one another. And all of a sudden, I felt this waft of air <laughs> that could only have been oh, goodness. the opening of a door that I was certain I had locked. <laughs> and then there was this awkward silence where I didn't want to look. No, and I just, I literally dove. Yeah. Under the she seat. left me so, I mean, like, I'm, I just, I didn't, I'm alone. Under the and all of a sudden I hear I'm this. I'm so sorry, sweetie. This terrified, that's okay. This terrified one word that changed everything. <laughs> Dad? <laughs> and I turn around, I jump up and like I'm wrapped up in a sheet like a toga. And I'm like, what? What? And we're looking at each other, me and my 12-year-old. Like, neither of us knows what to say. There's no parenting book that prepares you for this moment. <laughs> And then he surveys the situation and with even more horror in his voice, then he said, Dad, he said, why did you pick my bed? <laughs> I don't think he slept the rest of the trip. No, I don't think he did. So <laughs> at this point, he's thinking this is a moment that needs to be shared. And so he yes. says, I'm telling Nana. <laughs> And he starts running back downstairs to alert everyone else that there's something upstairs they need to see. And I'm like under the sheets like saying, catch him, Dave. Catch I cannot him. tell Nana. And so I'm running wrapped in the toga, doing the silent scream that all parents know. Stop it. Stop it. You will not tell Nana. Nana, if you're watching this, now you know. She knows now. What was happening. It's okay. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a moment that really changed everything. Now, I will say yeah. one positive that came out of this whole experience is that now... When he comes to our door and it's locked, he doesn't try to open it. In fact, you can hear him audibly say, oh my gosh. And he just like walks off. So he, he walked in expecting to get something out of his room and he stumbled in on Fifty Shades of Middle Age. And it, I think, haunted his dreams. But It really did. But now we also have learned something that we... Probably triple check we, locks. We too. Can't necessarily count on a lock. Yeah, get a good so, lock. Yeah. We all learned something, and that one word. One word. Dad, in the tone in which it, it just changed said, everything. It changed everything. But in the same way, we we know that words are powerful. One word does have the power to change everything, and God is the very creator of words, and He actually even spoke this world into existence just by using His words. And so, as we were planning, kind of what what we're going to talk about this throughout this series, we really wanted to go back to what did God say to the very first married couple, Adam and Eve, because that's going to be important. What was that first word that he said to them? And, you know, many of us have probably read over these verses before, but we wanted to go a little bit deeper. And we wanted to, to look at the Hebrew of the very first word that God said to the very first married couple. And that Hebrew word is parah. It's spelled P-A-R-A-H. And I just think it's a beautiful word. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. Hurrah. And it's used like, I think, 39 times in the Old Testament alone. And, and it has three distinct meanings, but before I, I carry on with this, I'm going to share that verse with you. And some of you probably already know what I'm talking about. It is the verse in Genesis 1:28. It says, God blessed them. So after he created Adam and Eve, he blessed them first, which I just love that picture. 
and said, be fruitful. And then it goes on and says, and multiply. And I think many of us have heard this verse and we think, well, it's just God saying, Adam and Eve, go have a bunch of kids so that you can, you know, populate the earth. But really, I think it's interesting that his very first word was not multiply. His very first word was be fruitful. And like I said, in the Hebrew, it's this word para. And, and this word para has three distinct meanings because often Hebrew words have more than just one meaning in, in our translation that we can see. So as we researched this, we found out these are the three distinct meanings. Number one, it is to bear fruit. And that's to bear fruit in your life individually. And we'll talk about what fruit means to God in just a minute. Number two, it's to flourish as a couple. And number three, it's to cause others to bear fruit. Yeah, and I love, I love those pictures of what God's wanting to do. That he, he, Like you said, he starts with a blessing. Exactly. And then he says, go and parah. And, and if, if you're a single person listening to this, he was talking to them as a couple, but also as individuals. Absolutely. He wants you to parah. He wants you to flourish, to bear fruit, and to cause others to bear fruit right where you are. Again, this isn't something that starts when you're married. But for those who are married, man, what a gift to think. He, he calls us to do this together as a team and as a couple. And so you think, what is fruit? What does that really mean? Now, all through scripture, God was using these kind of agricultural metaphors because that's who he was talking to. In fact, that first couple, their first job was essentially landscaping and gardening. And, and that's a thread that continued through scripture. Jesus told a lot of parables that had to do with planting and, and the soil because the people would have understood that. And in our culture, we're not as adept at, at, at gardening and farming as they were. But these truths still hold so, so true. And so when he says bear fruit in your life, he's not saying he wants you to have more, more apples and bananas and those kind of fruit. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit uh, is this. The book of Galatians gives us a, a, a very comprehensive list. And it says this is the kind of fruit the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when God says, I want you to bear fruit, I want you to parah, he's saying, I want you to develop and cultivate more of these things in your life, in your heart, in your home, in your marriage. More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And imagine what our lives could look like. Imagine what our marriages could look like if we got rid of all the weeds and we had more of this kind of fruit. And that, that's the picture that God has for us. That's what he's calling us to. And in order for us to bear fruit, you know, we know that they are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that only comes through following Christ, you know. And so we have to stay rooted in Christ. And like we talked about last week, in order to kind of remain in that love seat as a couple, when we're talking about marriage, we want to know that, that God is the very foundation of that love seat. And so we need to stay rooted in Him. And in order, in order to have healthy growth in our life and to stay rooted in Christ, there has to be this element of pruning. And so our first point is as a couple... You bear fruit by pruning to make room for growth. And we're going to kind of unpack this in just a minute, but I want to share this verse with you. It's in John 15. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And, you know, I love um, this image because I feel like we live in this beautiful place that has so many blooming uh, plants and shrubs. And, you know, we're called the Garden City. Augusta is the Garden City. And when we first moved here, we had two big azalea bushes on our property. And I was so excited to kind of work with these because I know, I know they have those big, beautiful blooms in the spring. And so I remember in the fall, I, Dave came outside and I was like using these pruning shears right here. And I was hacking yeah. away at these azalea bushes. Which is a scary looking tool. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what this was. Like, I, I have a very limited skill set when it comes to tool. And, and Ashley's got this thing that looks like it's out of a horror movie. And she's just attacking this poor bush. I mean, right. cutting off not only the dead parts, 
But the live parts, and me not knowing really anything about gardening, I'm like, like, sweetie, are you, are you okay? You appear to be killing that poor, helpless bush. And she's like, no, this is actually what makes it grow. And, and it seems counterintuitive. It seems like it, that doesn't make sense. Why would you cut away something to make it grow? And yet that's exactly what does cause it to grow. And the, it's imagery that, that God gives us in Scripture. It's imagery that every farmer and gardener would understand. Yes. But it's also imagery that we're called to apply to our own lives. We are because, you know, even just like with Dave looking at that, like, are you hurting that bush? Are you mangling it? Is it going to it never grow again? You know, are you cutting out all the goodness in it? And that's just not the truth. I mean, just like with the bush, you know, I cut it in the fall. Come springtime, master's time, that azalea bush was healthier. It had more blooms than the year before. And I kept on doing that year after year. I keep it healthy. In the same way, God is pruning our hearts. Yeah. You know, if we let him, if we, if we allow him to come into our hearts and really prune, prune what's there that needs to kind of to be made you know, new and, and room for new growth, we need to allow him to do that in our lives because he's the master gardener of our hearts. And he's the one who's going to do that. He really knows our innermost being. He knows what needs to be pruned. But I think so many times as a couple, we kind of look at our spouse and we think that it's our job to prune our spouse. Right. Yeah. It's not. That's what we think. Like that. And this happens in a lot of marriages. There's this invisible set of pruning shears. And you're like, well, God calls us to prune. I'm putting it on you. And we do it through our criticism, through our words. Like, well, you don't do this right. You don't do this right. And and I wish you would do more of this. And we think that we're helping. And all we're doing is creating a, a, a bloodbath. God never calls us to prune each other. Only God is the master gardener with like a surgeon's scalpel who ever prunes a person or a heart. He doesn't call a husband and wife to prune each other. That only injures each other. What he calls us to do essentially is to both take a handle of this and to prune our schedules, our lives. And here's a principle. Busyness is an enemy of peace. And so we've got to be willing to prune away some of our activities to create more growth and, and create less chaos in our lives. And so that's what's going to create peace. I think one of the biggest distractions and dangers, weeds choking out marriages right now, right. it isn't these, these big issues of, of couples like hating each other or anything like that. It's a lot of times couples with good intentions, their marriages are being suffocated just by so much activity. Our lives are so busy. And if Satan can't outright stop you or derail you, he'll be content to get behind you and just push you too fast. And a lot of us are going just too fast. Like, we need to slow down the rhythm of life that God modeled for us in Genesis. He worked a day on creation, and then he stopped, and he rested. Not because he was tired, he's God. But he paused, he reflected, he saw that it was good. He took time, he got to the end of the week, he had a Sabbath, a full, like, day of rest. He, He was modeling for us this rhythm that's sustainable and joyful and creates room for growth and room for our relationships to flourish. But in our marriages, man, we get so busy with our kids' activities and with work and all of this stuff... That we keep saying yes to things and we never stop doing anything because a lot of it's good stuff and we don't have the discipline to prune away good things out of our life. The bad stuff's easier, hopefully. Well, that's no good. Let's cut it out. But a lot of times we've got to cut out good stuff just to make room for life and for growth. And and that's where you've got to work together. Each of you take a handle of that pruning shear and say, what in our schedule do we need to cut right now in this season? And to constantly be evaluating where you are and making sure you're on the same page. It's so true. And we've had to do that in our own marriage. I think so many times you can have all, you can say yes to too many good things and then they're not really so good anymore for your family. And I know there was a season where I I feel like we were just running ourselves ragged to different activities that we were doing, you know, with our children, with ourselves. And we just kind of came to a head and we were like, listen, we're not having 
you know, family dinners as much anymore. It's kind of everything's on the go. And I feel like we're just dis- disconnected as a family. We need to prune something. And so we, we just decided, you know, these are all good things, but maybe not all at the same time. So maybe we need to shelf some of these things and, and save them for another season. And so we've tried to do that with our own kids. You know, when you have four kids, you can have a lot of activities going on, but we try to limit it to like one per season. Sometimes we say, you're sitting out this season, you can do the next season. And so you just have to find what works for your own family. And it takes both of you working together, not directing those shears towards each other. Because really what God calls us to do for each other is he wants us to pour into each other. He wants us to have so much filling up us in our hearts which can only come from God, the living water. He's the one that gives us the living water, right? He's the fount that never runs dry. And we, when we're so rooted in him, we can pour out into our spouse from, from goodness, those, those, those good fruits of the spirit of joy and kindness and peace. And, and that way we're not going to damage our relationship. We're going to help it to grow. We're cultivating a stronger relationship. Yeah. And, and kind of the questions we're going to ask throughout is like, what are you pruning as a, as a couple and in your individual life? What are you pouring out? Because we're always pouring out something, being intentional about that. And in a minute, we'll get to what are you planting, those three key elements. Yeah. But this ties into this, this second point about flourishing. Uh, and it's, as a couple, you flourish by speaking words of encouragement right. and not criticism. That's right. And we find this verse that goes right along with this in Ephesians. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And, you know, our words, my goodness, we, we have such power in our words such power to build up or to tear down. And the point here we want to make is we need to be our spouse's biggest encourager, not their biggest critic, because the tone of your words will shape the tone of your marriage. And I know so many times, you know, we'll be kind of meeting with couples and they'll say, well, I don't really like call him names or call her names. I don't really use, you know, cuss words at them, but you may not use harsh actual words, but your tone can be just as harsh and just as biting. And I know I've struggled with this over the years. I think sometimes, you know, I think I'm okay because I'm not using harsh words and I'm not name calling, but man, I can really be cold in my tone. And so I have to be very aware of that because I think that it's easy to let that pass. And so we need to constantly be like, you know, is my tone one of love and one of encouragement? Is my tone one that's going to keep us at peace with each other? And tone is huge. I mean, it's not just the words that you say. It's, it's the tone in which you say it. It really does set the tone of your whole marriage. And it's not even just what you say to your spouse. I think you can be setting the tone of your marriage by what you say about your spouse, even when they're not there to hear it. Oh, yeah. If, what are you saying when you get together with your guy friends or you get together with your girlfriends? Is it just become this time where you're trashing each other's spouses and talking about, oh, man, he can't do anything right or she's always nagging me about this and... And it becomes this not place to vent, but it, it creates in our mind this negativity that your spouse is going to sense. You bring that home, whether you realize it or not. And so we've got to be so focused on calling out the good in each other and speaking life, thinking about the good things. Like Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true and noble and right and excellent, worthy of praise. I want to think about those things because if you're looking for those things in your spouse, you're going to see them a lot more. If all you're looking for is the negative in your spouse, it's all you're going to see. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Whatever you keep looking for, you're going to find. So make sure you're looking for the right things. Because if you train your mind to only see your spouse's flaws, that's all you'll notice. And they'll feel like they're never good enough for you. And your negativity and criticism won't ever prompt them to get better because you're not pouring into them. You're not pouring out encouragement and you're not feeding their soul. You're taking the pruning shears and you're just hacking away at them. Saying, oh, if you would only do this, if you would only do that. And that doesn't help. That doesn't create growth. It creates wounds. That's all it does. 
And so what, what do we do? I, sometimes you get to this place of frustration and you're like, I just, I want him or I want her to change this part of who they are. And, and so we just think our nagging or our pushing or our pointing out that, that our needs are not being met is going to do the trick. And, and it can come from a good place. Like, you know, we'll have a lot of ladies to come up to us and they'll have this, this good and godly desire to say, I just wish my husband would, would be more of a spiritual leader at home. I mean, the, the, and guys, we're, we're called to that. We're, we're given this very sacred mantle of responsibility to be the servant leaders in our home, leading our families towards Christ. And, and if, if we don't take any initiative in that area, then we're, we're dropping the ball. But what happens a lot is these wives, will, they'll be so frustrated with their husband and they're so always pointing out that he's falling short in that area that he just says, well, I, 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 whatever I'm doing, it isn't going to be enough. And so why even try? Somebody feels like they can't win in a certain area. They'll, they'll just kind of take their ball and go home. And sometimes what, what, what the lady wants, what he's falling short as, it's this impossible standard where she wants him to be Beth Moore. You know, she wants him to do these like two hour Greek Bible studies with her. It's just not even how he's wired. And so instead of trying to make him something, he's not find something to praise. I'm telling you, encouragement fuels the soul a lot more than criticism. So to do this, if there's anything he is doing that's in that area where you want him to grow, if it's in, in spiritual leadership, find it and praise it. If there's ever a Sunday where he's the one who says, let's go to church today. Then you go up to him and you say, baby, when you said, let's go to church today, I felt so close to you. Just love how you just take, take the lead in, in, in leading our family towards the Lord. I just am so glad that I'm married to you. And then you lean in and you just nibble on his ear a little bit. And you won't then, forget that. And then you whisper something, whisper something that's too sexy for us even to repeat in a PG-13 sermon. And I promise you that next Sunday, next Saturday, <laughs> church tomorrow, got church tomorrow. Everybody to bed early. Iron, iron those clothes. We are going to church tomorrow. We might do more than one service. Hmm? You know? <laughs> so you find something to praise. And, incur- and this, is, this is biblical. I mean, God never calls us to change someone through our criticism or through our nagging. In fact, he speaks a lot against that. I mean, you can read the book of Proverbs alone. We'll have a lot of verses about that. But when we speak life, what we praise, praised behavior becomes repeated behavior. In anybody, in our kids, in our spouses, in anybody. So focus on the good and the good will tend to grow. Absolutely. That, that praise behavior is repeated behavior. It's huge. I mean, it's just kind of like if we can remember that, it makes all the difference in the world. And I think so many times, like, like Dave said, we just think, oh, well, I have this critical eye. And if nobody's telling him that he needs to do this one thing better than who is, and it's like, well, what can you encourage instead? Why be critical? What can you encourage that you see that is good? There's a verse in the Bible that says, find the gold. And I love that. It's like, what is the gold in your spouse? Find the gold. And then you call that out of them and encourage that to grow. And I think when we do that, it causes us to flourish. It causes that second meaning of parole. We're flourishing together because we're both bearing fruit individually because we're rooted in the Lord. And then we're flourishing together. But then that brings us kind of to our third meaning of parole. When we're doing those things, it causes us to actually cause others in the world to bear fruit. Now, when God was talking to Adam and Eve, you know, the first married couple... And he told them to parah. This third meaning was a little different for them because it was literally only Adam and Eve. They were the only people on earth at the time. So if he's telling them to cause others to bear fruit, he's saying, Eve, you be so fruit bearing in your life, so connected to God in your life that you cause Adam to bear fruit. And Adam, you do the same to Eve. And when a couple does this, it is this outpouring effect. It just influences the people around them. 
And so I want to talk about in our, in our third point that as a couple, you cause others to bear fruit by serving in partnership with your spouse to make the world a better place. Because, you know, God brought the two of you together for your pleasure and for his pleasure. But not only for that, he really brought you together for a greater purpose so that you could change the world in some way. And, and you two are very different. You know, you're unique. There's no two other people like the two of you. And together, there's some great thing that he has for you. But I think so many times we get kind of in the business of life and the business of the mundane. And, and we're kind of just going through the motions. And we forget that. We forget that God has a purpose and a plan for us. And so I just want to encourage you to remember that today. To remember that you are together for a great purpose. And, and I want you to start having those conversations thinking about what is that purpose that God has for us? And that brings us really to our third question that we want you guys to think about. We had that first question is, what are you pruning? The second question is, what are you pouring out? And that third question is, what are you planting? Because whatever you're planting is what is going to bear fruit. That's going to be the legacy that you're leading. At leaving. And, and if you have children, of course, that's part of your legacy, but it even goes more beyond that. So what are those things that you're planting in your life together as a couple that is going to influence the world for God's glory? Because his goal for you as an individual, uh, you know, especially those of you who are single and, and the goal for you as a couple, it is to go out into the world just like it was for this first couple and to make the world a better place. Here's the rest of that verse that we started at the beginning. And God blessed them and said, Parah, be fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And he goes on from there, and you see that God has this global vision for that first couple, and it's a global vision for us. He's saying, go out and create order out of chaos. Go out and create life where there's only desolate wastelands. Go out and, and fill it with love where, where, there, is, where there is apathy or, or angst. Go out and be peacemakers. Go out and make this world better because you were here. Bring my kingdom to earth. That's the mission that we're called to. And so this final point is that God doesn't want to just bless your marriage, even though he does, he wants to bless your marriage, but he also wants to bless the world through your marriage. Mm -hmm. He wants your love story, your life to be something that outlives you. He wants, when you're in heaven, that the ripple effect, the seeds that you planted, just like these actual seeds that, you know, we've got here, like kale and corn and whatever it is that you want to plant that what we're planning with our life through our actions, through our words, through, through our partnership, it's, it's going to root and it's going to create a harvest that, that will not only change the world while we're living, but like a ripple effect of a rock thrown into the middle of a pond. It's going to ripple out and impact generations to come. Whether you have biological children or, or, or not, we're all called to touch future generations through our words and through our actions. And as married couples, if you're not dreaming together, if you're not serving together then you're missing out on one of the most sacred and intimate parts of a marriage. Something that will bind your hearts together and bring you closer to God in the process. And there are so many examples of couples who are doing this that we could share. But just for the sake of time, as we prepare to close, we want to share the story of just one couple in this church who, uh, who's, who's challenged us to think in this way. We have. You know, their names are Dan and Lynn Smith. And Dan is an ophthalmologist in Aiken, and Lynn works side-by-side side with him, and they're just awesome people. And I'd heard about them for years because Dave has often gone to Guatemala to go work in an orphanage called Casa Shalom that our church sponsors, and many of you here have gone on the trip and you sponsor the kids there. And it's just awesome. But I remember him telling me about Dan and Lynn because he said that they would both go together often to this orphanage, and they would basically give ophthalmologic... Uh, ophthal- 
they would have ophthalmology eye exams. exams. I'm like, how do I say that? They would give eye exams to the orphans who were there. And you, you all, these orphans, I mean, they come from dire circumstances and many of them had never had their eyes examined and desperately needed glasses or treatment. And so Dan and Lynn provided this and not only one time, but they come back year after year, sometimes multiple times a year and they build relationships with these kids. And I got to actually witness this firsthand last fall and it's just so cool. I got to tour the clinic where they treat these kids and I got to go in and see Dan and Lynn doing what they do and just the joy that is on their face. I mean, it's just awesome when you see a couple use the gifts and talents that God has given them and the special knowledge that they have to just change the world for the better and to show a child God's love, it's magical. And it's just something that I feel like the best marriages, they truly have a couple who, who get this, yeah. who get that they have a greater purpose. And Dan and Lynn aren't even stopping there. They still have plans as they move into retirement to maybe open an eye clinic there for even more children to get eye care. And so, you know, be thinking big dreams and big missions like Dan and Lynn, because that's what God causes us to do. Yeah, and it's going to look different for every couple and for every individual based on the talents and passions and gifts and experiences he's given you. But dream together and think about how can we serve the world together and change the world together. And not only is it going to help your marriage, not only is it going to help the kingdom, but I'm telling you that the happiest people are the ones who've discovered this truth that, that there's such joy in serving. There's such joy in just partnering with God and the work that he is doing to bring his kingdom to earth. And so dream those dreams, and it might start, you might start by serving together in children's ministry here or leading a small group together or be one of the, the, the many couples, you know, you know other, other couples like, you know, you know, Gary and Sue or the Phillips or the Cheeks who've gone to Guatemala year after year and served together in that way. Or whatever it is for you, just start somewhere. You'll be amazed at what that does to bind your hearts together, to bring you closer to God and to create a legacy through your love that will that will touch eternity. And so that's our, our kind of final challenge to you. We're going to wrap up. I'm going to have Ashley uh, pray for us. But again, thank you guys uh, for being here. Thank you for your prayers and your encouragement. Thank you for making the effort to, to just week after week come and seek God's will for your own life. And he's going to honor that. One final bit of advice, lock your doors. Please lock your doors. And then check it twice. Check it twice. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for all the people in this room, Lord, and those watching online. I know that none of us are here by accident. And I just, I pray that you take whatever it is that you want us to learn today and help us to apply it to our lives, Lord. Help us to really think about what needs to be pruned in our lives, to make room for growth in you first and foremost, Lord, and also for room for growth in our families. And, and what, what are we pouring out, Lord? Are we pouring out from the well that will never run dry because we are so rooted in you? Or are we really on empty and we have nothing to give? And really help us to think about what are we planting? What are those seeds that we're planting that are going to impact someone else for eternity, Lord, and make a huge difference in this world? I pray that we think about these things. I pray for the married couples in this room and that you will strengthen your marriage to these, strengthen their marriage to these conversations and help them to grow closer to you and to each other in the process. We thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.